Snippet, the short podcast platform. Hello, my friend, and welcome to The Closet Space. My name is Vic Ravindran, and I have been gay my whole fucking life. But I didn't say so for 20 years. And I'm far from the only one who has kept a part of themselves hidden away for so long. So every week, I talk to amazing individuals who have come out of the closet in some form or another, whether they're part of the LGBTQIA community, or even if they've come out of closets we don't often talk about, like having an invisible disability or simply leaving their way of life behind. Hopefully these conversations will serve as a joyful reminder that there is an abundant world of opportunity beyond the closet door for those prepared to open it. And for those of you who aren't quite ready yet, I hope this show is a sign that there are so many people who are excited to meet you when you do make that choice. This week, I am so excited to share my conversation with actor and activist Tona Tu. As a queer person and a person of color, Tona Tu's rise in the acting world is far from traditional. His story is one of community, kismet, natural talent, and some goddamn nerve, honey. We discuss the many closets he has been bold enough to shed the shame of and how he found the power to do so through applying his truth to his art and his activism. Without further ado, my conversation with Tona Tu. Thank you so much, Tona Tu, for being here on the Closet Space podcast. I'm so happy to have you here today. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, well, I'm so excited to have you here because uh, so many people already know you as the fabulous Marcos from Vida on Stars, where you play an effervescent, life of the party, kind of uh, kind of queer, ex- uh, amazing. Uh, yeah, life of the party is the best best way to describe him. He's just a, a bird with all peacock feathers out. 100%. Um, and so people might know that experience of you, that side of you, but I'm excited to, uh, excited to talk to you about more about your personal life and your personal journey and how you bring your personal truth um, to the characters that you play on TV and, uh, and also on how you apply that personal truth to some of the work that you do in terms of activism. Um, so to start off, tell me a little bit about uh, how you got it started, because you um, obviously have been acting for quite a while. Uh, Marcos on Vita is not your first role. Uh, so how did your acting journey get started and where did coming out kind of play into that for you uh, as you grew into your acting work? Um, I took my first acting class um, in first grade. I grew up in East L.A., Boyle Heights, and, um, you know, it was the early, like late 90s, early 2000s. And so uh gangs were really prevalent at the time and so my mom put me in this after school program where they taught us improv and to use our imaginations and stuff like that so that's when I first got the bite and uh storytelling has always been a passion of mine because I would just play in the bathtub with a bucket full of dolls my little ponies troll dolls like and spend hours in there um, so yeah, very she, relatable. Definitely she was a fag from day one. Uh, <laughs> An OG as they say. OG baby platinum card. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so storytelling kind of just always came from there. I also grew up in a beauty salon, so I just grew up with a bunch of women talking and sharing their stories about divorce and, you know, oh my God, you should talk to her, she's going through the same thing and she needs a lawyer and blah, blah, blah. But, um, when I went to high school, um, Kim Battersby, who was the head of the West Covina uh, Theater Department, they did a presentation to the eighth graders who were coming in and I was just like, this sounds cool and they're all fun and they're crazy and... I was, I've always been loud and crazy and, you know, love (laughs) (laughs) spectacle. Um, And so I just auditioned to, for like, for the school play when the first one was Anne Frank and um, it was awesome and I had a really good time and I like really allowed myself to be moved easily by the circumstances and I was able to like cry and 
you know, I got into the advanced theater class my freshman year, which is cool. And I don't know, as a queer person, I came out, I came out pretty young. I came out to my first friend at 12 or 13, uh, as bisexual as everyone does. <laughs> Bye. Um, it's literally the gateway drug. <laughs> Unless you're fully bi, because we are not trying to erase you. Absolutely not. The no gate erasure. does not close there. No erasure. Yeah, absolutely not. Bi experience is a true experience. Truly. Here for it. Um, but, or and, I, I don't know. I kind of always felt othered, and stories helped me pass time, and they helped teach me, and they helped, like, I learned from them. Degrassi was awesome. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I don't know. That really helped me come into my own and, um, explore the different facets of being an emotional being and what self-expression meant and stuff like that. Awesome. So how did that, uh, did you feel like you had a balancing act between, um, being a queer person and also a queer person of color? Uh, do you feel like that factored in for you at all and how, how you grew up or the, the culture that you grew up in? I mean, yeah, I would say I would, I became a master code switcher. Um, out of necessity, sure. You know, uh, in certain spaces, like in academic spaces, you couldn't be a person of color, really. Um, and in certain communities, you couldn't be flamboyant. And um, oftentimes, I say that acting wasn't a vocation, but a defense mecha- mechanism or a survival technique. You know, that I eventually capitalized on because sure. what? Make that coin, honey. In post-capitalist <laughs> America, take your traumas and turn it into money. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then eventually you just start developing different parts of the craft and you fall in love with the storytelling. And for me, I just recognize that, you know, humans don't live outside of a world of story. And depending on the story that we're telling ourselves, we react in those ways, um, both internally and on a macro level. And so if we can control the narratives that we have, we can create different agreements or we can have different understandings as to how the world works. And so I have always been very political um, uh, and so I remember at 17 making the decision between going to USC for theater with no guarantees of any financial aid whatsoever or going to UCLA on a full ride to study political science. I chose storytelling, um, because I did, I saw that they, they were, they were intertwined, mm-hmm. you know, culture changes faster than politics does. So if we can change the pulse of the culture, then we can change policy. Totally. And that's something that I think is something, uh, for anyone out there who, who, uh, thinks that maybe they don't have like a, a, a political science degree, that they don't think that they can get out there and be a part of the conversation. Um, I think what you just said is perfect uh, advice because you're turning your, you're taking your best uh, weapon in your arsenal and using it to affect culture in a way that can still change policy or can still change uh, minds and hearts uh, yeah. around the world. And that's definitely the first step to getting laws uh, established in the world is changing hearts and minds and getting people on your side. So I want to talk a little bit about um, your time on Vita because Vita is so queer representational. Um, you you obviously, as a flamboyant uh, gay character, uh, a queer character, there's um, non-binary characters, there are lesbian characters, um, and it also takes place in Boyle Heights where it's a heavily Latino population. So that's something that we don't get to see a ton of all the time. So what was it like to be uh, a part of a show where you got to showcase both your sexuality um, and uh, your culture or parts of your culture um, and just have that be, just be right on display for everyone and see um, that kind of, see you, see the, see the boats of the sides of you. Yeah, I mean, it was a gift. Um, it felt like kismet, you know. I had auditioned for two of the other 
roles on the show, uh, Carlos and Tlaloc, and I didn't even get a call back. And I had read the first two episodes that were so beautifully written by Tania Saracho. Um, and I wanted to die. I wanted to die. I literally was messaging my agents like crazy, like, I need to be on the show. It's in the city that I was born in. It is political as hell. It is so queer. And I'm like, this is all of me. You yeah, know what I mean? Okay. And I think it was like 22, 23 or 24 at the time. And I, at that age, was so unapologetically queer. I had been tired of being told that I couldn't be queer. I got my ear pierced. I let my hair grow long. I was performing at Akbar doing cartwheels and drag. Oh, we and love them, honey. It like splits <laughs> towels the house down. Towels the house down, honey, yes. <laughs> um, and I was exploring my sexuality for the first time in a really unapologetic way and clearing through some of that shame. And so I was just like, this is, this is it. Like, this is me. Like, what do I do? You know? <laughs> and so... Um, I was doing a play in Atwater Village uh, for like $20 a performance. It was nothing. Um, but I loved the work. And I played this, um, the only Mexican drag queen in a Filipino ladyboy massage parlor. And there was a banjee ball number at the end. Oh, perfect. Uh, totally. And it was just the greatest time. Uh, it was written by Boney Alvarez. I was called Fixed. And uh, Tanya, the showrunner, came to the show because Adrián González and Ana La Madrid uh, were two very good friends of hers oh, from, since Chicago. It really is kismet. Truly kismet. She came the day before we closed. And, you know, she came up to me and was like, congratulations. And I said, oh, thank you so much. And obviously I was like, I know who you are. Like, this is amazing. But I didn't, you know, I didn't want to embarrass myself. So I was just like, oh, I got to go. You know, whatever. It's like so shy. And she messaged me on Instagram and was like, what's your agent's information? I wrote you a part. Ah, oh my God. And it was just a small, like, uh, it, was a, it was a one scene co-star role. I think I had max like six or seven lines. And then they tried to do this like really cool shot. And so I was like, well, if I'm the best friend, uh, I'm going to like, I'm going to do this and let me improv here. And like, bitch, if, I'm, if I only have five seconds in this bitch, then I'm going to do whatever the hell I want. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm like, I'm, I'm going to make myself known. Yeah. So I did that. And then that turned into... Um, a guest star the next episode and then six episodes the next season and then three episodes culminating with the Queer Senera episode. For me, Marcos was the beginning of me learning that I don't have to perform. Like Marcos was me at 24. Like Tanya really found that uh, that was very much the intersections of who I was. Of course, he was a little bit more than what I was, but... I think at the at the end of the experience of it all, I started recognizing that I am queer enough without having to perform queerness. My very existence is queer, you know? Um, my very existence is political because of the color of my skin. I don't have to... Me just being in these spaces is a political act, you know? Um, and I learned to become less defensive when it came to things because I think at the 24, it was like, it's us against the world and we're going to change it. And like, yeah. yes, and like... Yeah, and I'm still very much that. I don't think that will ever fully go away, but it's definitely turned into um, owning my sense of power. Welcome back to The Closet Space. My conversation with actor and activist Tona Tew continues. You are a very uh, outspoken activist, and not only do you apply your self-lived truth to your roles that you play, but you are um, constantly using your platform to speak truth to power, um, standing up for your community, standing up for other communities. Um, and 
putting yourself out there uh, in protest, getting in the fray of things. Um, so I want to ask you a little bit about your experience in working with that. What went, what led you to kind of like your first few protests and how did you really become involved as an act, the activist that you are today? I, so my, I come from, again, a family of undocumented immigrants and I hate that I have to preface it. We're all naturalized now. We pay our taxes. We, you know, um, I saw the amount of red tape that we had to go through. And because of academia, I was able to see how the other side lived. And that made me really angry. Life was so much easier. Life didn't have to be that hard for us. Um, even simple things like in the public school form, asking what language you speak at home, automatically put me in the English as second language classes, which were much slower than the regular classes or even the honors classes. And I had to have a white PE teacher who, who got to know me and fought for me at the school district to put me in regular classes and then two weeks later I was in the honors classes. But it, 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 she fought for months, Ms. Davis, and I owe her that. And because of all of that, I really recognize that the system is not fair and it's by design. Slavery might have ended, but if you can keep a group of people dumb hungry and desperate indentured servants work just as well pay them the minimum wage don't raise that minimum wage for years oh are they sick and dying they'll take out loans that's a wonderful investment it's horrible it really is horrible and so for me recognizing and hearing people talk about my community as if they were monsters as if they were villains or um illegal made me sad and that sad that, that sadness turned into anger and that anger turned into nerve um and so i started not speaking for the unspoken because they have voices but speaking for the unheard um and as i entered spaces like usc that culture shock was wild because usc is one of the wealthiest schools in this yeah. country uh -huh. and i mean there were days where i was so broke i had i was work i was taking 22 units at school from, I would be up like 6 a.m. and I would get out of class at one, drive 30 minutes to Chase Bank downtown and work a part-time job from 1.30 till 7 p.m., drive back and go to, and do work, I'm barely eating because I had no money and I was trying to pay for school because this was my shot, you know what I mean? It was the undocumented community and the Latinx community that supported me. The people who worked the dining halls, I didn't have money to eat, so she would swipe me in for free because I reminded her of her nephew. That's amazing. I mean, it's uh, it's not amazing the circumstance, but it is uh, it's incredible to see the the community so holding uh, each other, holding each other yeah. together. Um, but yeah, just I'm, I'm also fairly positive that most of the other students at USC were not experiencing your experience at all. Yeah, at all, and it was hard because they would be like, "We're gonna go to Cabo this weekend. Do you want to come?" And I was like. Bitch how, <laughs> bitch right, how. Yeah. Uh -huh. I mean, yeah. And then I remember that, like I was having such anxiety one day because I was running out of money and I literally had zero dollars in my bank account. Um, it's happened three times in my life and it all throughout college. And I remember this like overwhelming sense of like, what am I gonna do? And then when it finally hit zero, I was like, nothing to do. And I'm fine and I'll figure it out. And uh, I did. And it was, it was always women of color who helped me predominantly women of color bent over backwards to help me 
and uh, I owe them everything. And so then now as an adult in these spaces, I don't have fear of speaking up. Sometimes I, I get a little nervous or anxious about, did I say it too much? <laughs> did I overstep? Did I insult someone? Did I talk myself out of a job because I'm sure. too fucking opinionated and don't know how to stop, you know? And that's something that I'm learning to temper, but those are tactics that I'm learning, not the cause. So what kind of causes are you, do you feel like you're most attached to at the moment? Uh, and what um, what are you kind of trying to work on towards bettering those movements? Um, currently at the moment, I'm working on really building my career um, I, with this last project that I got I really oh right yes. yeah we can talk about that in a second but with this <laughs> yeah. last uh, with this pilot that I just got uh, I'm positioning myself in such a way where I can start collaborating with other artists and other writers um to tell these kinds of stories uh-huh. you know um again I don't come from nepotism at all so you know any and all connections that I do make are very valuable to me um but causes that are deep for me are um number one is mental health um during COVID my mental health went to shit and I'm still facing the repercussions of it. And my anxiety has never been higher. And learning how to cope with it has been a process. And being gentle with myself during all of that has been a process. And learning to ask for help has been a process. And <clears throat> I recognize that I wasn't the only one. And fortunately, I do have resources that some people don't. And so it's really important to me, especially for um, men of color, to reach out and seek mental health. Totally. Um, spaces. I am a strong advocate for the Latinx community, in particular the undocumented community. I think what's the concentration camps that are happening at the border are still atrocious. Fuck Megan McCain for calling them, <clears throat> for, for being upset with that word, because I think she would prefer we call them summer camps instead, where these kids are just having the time of their lives experiencing <laughs> trauma. Um, and then, of course, queer issues I find really important to talk about. Ultimately, I'd love to address how we treat one another in sexual spaces. Mm-hmm especially gay men, um, spaces like Grindr, spaces like Scruff, um, how do we explore sexual freedom and sexual liberation while also maintaining dignity, while also honoring another human being, um, navigating conversations on consent and sexual assault and taking ownership over when we mess up and being able to call ourselves out on that is really important to me. Um, yeah, I think that's those are the things that matter. Well, that's really awesome. On top of um, just some of the causes that you shared, but I feel like, um, not to throw the pun of the, the title of the show in, but it's like, you not only have you come out of the closet uh, as a queer person, and but because I feel like mental health is its own closet. That oh, people 100%. have to, uh, you know, have to negotiate their internal shame about opening that door. And even undocumented people have a bit of shame it's about, huge uh, it's another closet. So I A, applaud you for sharing all three of those stories uh, because hopefully someone listening uh, gets a little bit of your chutzpah and, yeah. uh, you know, can find their, find their way out too and do what you did, which, you know, your journey from sadness to anger and anger to nerve. I mean, that's, that's a great pathway because, you know, you can do a hell of a lot with some nerve. Yeah. Um, well, like you were just saying earlier, um, you have a new pilot, which is so exciting. Uh, do you want to share a little bit about what this new project is? Um, I'm not particularly sure how much I can share. Oh, please. Whatever whatever you can spare. Uh, but please, uh, yeah, you don't you don't have to ruin your career over this. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I'm not particularly sure what I can share. But what I can say, it's, it's an all Latinx cast. Um, it follows a family in Napa Valley. Uh, who own 
or Sonoma County, you know, whatever that wine, California, uh -huh. um, a Latinx family who owns this multi-billion dollar industry. And, uh, it's a big old family drama. Well, we're rooting for you for sure. Yeah. I de definitely want to see that. Based on how you described the project, it sounds very enticing. A wine drama. A wine drama. I want to see that very badly. Well, Tone it to you. It has been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, not only uh, just to talk about, pick your brain about your acting career, but also just um, how you've been able to utilize that to your creative benefit, but also your personal benefit, and also the benefit of others who are, um, you know, getting the chance to have someone like you uh, speak up for them and... Um, I'm, I'm so glad that they have a champion in you. Oh, well, I'm just fighting for my family. <laughs> and you've got a big, big old family. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you again for being on the Closet Space podcast. Uh, where can people find you if they want to uh, learn a little bit more about you and your upcoming project? For sure. My socials are I am Tonatiu. That's T-O-N-A-T-I-U-H. And for those of you who are wondering, Tonatiu is the Aztec sun god. But if I am rapping, you can call me Tonatia. If you since recording this podcast, the pilot Tona 2 discussed has been picked up by ABC, so be sure to catch him as Antonio Sandoval on the now-titled Promised Land, coming soon. Until next time, my name is Vic Ravindran, and thank you so much for joining me in the closet space. <laughs>